0: All right, friends. Invite you to turn in your Bibles to First Timothy chapter six, and if you would also turn to Luke's Gospel chapter sixteen. So, First Timothy six was we're continuing our series uh, entrusted with the gospel, First Timothy, and today we're actually finishing First Timothy. I, th- I thought there would be a few ho- hoops and hollers there that we. Boo! Yes, we can, I can draw this out another five weeks if you guys want, uh, <laughs> but we're actually, we're just going to finish uh, First Timothy chapter 6, and then for uh, Advent, which kind of Advent season officially begins next Sunday, we're going to do a, a series of sermons in um, uh, the first couple of chapters in Luke's gospel, so it, it, very excited about that, some very fascinating things in there, and uh Um, relevant things for us uh, and about our Savior Jesus Christ and his coming into the world. Um, But we're going to be looking today at 1 Timothy chapter 6, and so our scripture reading will be all of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, and then we'll have a, a supplementary reading of Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. So 1 Timothy chapter 6. Again, Paul writing to his uh, apostolic delegate, his, um, his ministerial assistant who he left in Ephesus, at the church in Ephesus, and he writes this, "'Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants "'regard their own masters as worthy of all honor "'so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled.'" Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit, And understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and a constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony, testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And now, Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. These are the words of Jesus in the parable of the dishonest manager. He, and this is Jesus, He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the reading of God's word, and we say thanks be to God indeed God your word has come to us and we have heard it and indeed your spirit is working even now by using your word to come not only into our minds but into our hearts and we pray that now in these next few moments as we meditate on these and reflect on them and apply them that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear And we pray this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, amen. So, as I said before, we're going to kind of sweep through 1st Timothy chapter 6 today. And this is uh, another one of those types of passages where the Apostle Paul kind of bounces back and forth in his instructions um, about social classes within the church at Ephesus, and he kind of bounces back and forth between those and his warnings about the false teachers, and then back into the topic about the the classes in the church, and then back into instructions to Timothy. And you may have caught that if you were to kind of outline this passage. He begins uh, in chapter six in the first couple of verses talking uh, about the conduct of Christian slaves. And to kind of keep back up here, notice that in chapter 5, he started to deal with a whole bunch of different uh, social groups or segments within the church. You know, the older men, you know, back in chapter 5, rebuke an older man and encourage, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. And then he uh, had a long instructions in chapter 5 about widows, and so this is a continuation of that. He now is addressing those who are slaves or bond servants in the church. And then he kind of jumps into this teaching about false teachers, which we've looked at on a previous message in verses 3 through 5. And then he comes back to the issue about uh, contentment in the world in verses 6 through 10. And then in 11 through 16, he jumps to some personal instructions to Timothy and then back to, again, kind of re Uh, catching the same kind of complementary theme about material possessions and wealth and money in verses 17 through 19 before he gives his farewell. Today I want to focus on just those three, the three parts, and we'll just kind of deal with the other, uh, the other sections, the the teaching about false teachers and the specifics to Timothy as kind of just transitions. Uh, But I want to focus on the ones that all could kind of be seen together. And that is the conduct of Christian slaves in verses 1 and 2, uh, contentment with godliness in verses 6 through 10, and then the charge to wealthy Christians in verses 17 through 19. So that's, that's going to be our focus today is to look at those three sections. And so let's begin by looking at the conduct of Christian slaves or bond servants. Notice the beginning of verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. We've encountered this word bondservant before. It's a Greek word doulos, and it's sometimes translated as slave. How many of your Bible translations uses the word slave? Yeah, what, what translation is that? The NIV. The NIV. What, yours NIV too? Okay. Uh, ESV here has bondservants. But slave is, is also the, the uh, word that this conveys. And then notice as well, the, the other term here, under a yoke. Under a yoke. The imagery here is the yoke, and we've seen this, I, I think I put this picture up before. It's this long wooden uh, kind of shoulder uh, piece that goes onto the shoulders and backs of oxen that the oxen would drag along. We, we, we encountered the... The, the imagery of an oxen in labor in chapter 5 about the, where the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the idea is what, that they would hook this large yoke onto the shoulders of, of the uh, beast of burden and they would carry and move heavy things like big stone uh, tablets that would draw, drag across the ground and kind of break up the, the grain or the stalks of grain. Here Paul kind of uses that same imagery under a yoke. And the combination of those those two things is the the picture of the typical worker in the ancient world. Now, some have objected to this idea of slaves and masters in the Bible, saying that the Bible promotes uh, slavery, or at least is indifferent to it. I want to just kind of, by way of reminder here, is uh, that the institution or the, the social strata of slaves and masters in the Greco-Roman world uh, was not without its problems, but it, uh, it's not quite the same institution that we think of when we think of slavery here in America post-Civil War. Of course, the Bible condemns man-stealing, and the Bible actually condemns owning a slave who was stolen. But the institution of slavery was kind of much broader than, uh, than stealing. There were lots of ways that, that somebody, a free person, could go into uh, the status of slave. Some, some would choose to do it on their own accord. Perhaps they had a debt that needed to be, uh, to be paid. So the institution here is, is quite a bit different. I would say, and I've said this before, I'd say a closer parallel for us to think about, it's not exact. So it's quite a bit different than what we had experienced today. But a closer parallel to slaves and master relationships would be employee and employer relationships. That would be a closer a closer example. And so Paul is dealing with the issue here of Christians who are happen to be slaves in the church. And he deals with two specific situations. In verse 1, he's talking about Christian slaves with unbelieving masters. So if you're a Christian slave and you have an unbelieving master, how are you to be with your unbelieving master? And then in verse 2, he talks about Christian slaves who have believing masters. Now picture this. You have, within the church in Ephesus, because you didn't have First Presbyterian in Ephesus, you didn't have First Baptist in Ephesus, you didn't have the large evangelical megachurch in Ephesus, there was just one church in Ephesus at this time. And so if you have a believing slave and a believing master, they're part of the same church. They're part of the same congregation. So let's look at how he addresses those. Christian slaves with unbelieving masters, let all who are under the yoke as bondservants res- regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And he look at the reason that he gives. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. This is yet another place where the Apostle Paul is dealing with the different relationships, the social structures in the church, and it is applying the gospel. How does the gospel apply to somebody who is living in these kind of social structures? He does this in a a couple of other places, and we've seen these before. Ephesians chapter 6, this is the Apostle Paul writes here, same word, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ not by way of i service as people pleasers but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is bond servant or free this is a, a parallel passage to what Paul is reminding Timothy here in verse 1. I love this. And he says, as you, as a bond servant, you are to look at your earthly masters and serve them as if you were serving Christ himself. Don't do it just as, you know, for eye service. Don't do just to be seen or as, as people pleasers but as bondservants of Christ. And that whatever you do, even if you're serving your master really well, and you maybe not even see an actual reward from that in this life, but notice that the Lord does. Did you catch that in verse 8? Whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. Similarly, Paul wrote again, Just kind of notice that there's multiple places that Paul's addressed this issue. Colossians chapter 3 is very similar. He says, bond servants, obey everything in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no impartiality. And it's helpful to remember in those contexts, the Apostle Paul is giving instructions to masters too. Right in the Ephesians passage, the next verses, masters, uh, uh, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Similarly in Colossians, the next verse deals with masters treating your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. These are all part of those, those kind of household codes. And Paul is saying, what he's saying here is God has established and arranged these and ordered these societal units. There is these kinds of arrangements, even in households, even in marriages, even in, in families. And he says, even in the, the workforce. And so here he's saying, if you happen to be in a situation where you're a bond servant, you're a slave working for a master, do so with all the honor that uh, because and the reason here is because so that the name of God and the teaching, meaning the teaching of the gospel is not uh, reviled. Here's a quote from somebody displaying a proper attitude of submission and respect and performing quality work help make the gospel believable. So that's how that's how Christian slaves are to be with unbelieving masters. What about Christian slaves with believing masters? Verse two, those slaves who have believing masters and note, catch this. This is very fascinating. He doesn't just kind of say for masters in general. He does make a distinction between those who are unbelieving masters and then believing masters in particular. Perhaps it was addressing a a specific error that was happening in the church. But he says those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Whoa. Rather, they must serve all the better since they those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved must not be disre- disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So notice what's behind what Paul's instruction there is. <clears throat> he, he's, the assumption that's, that's underneath all of this is that Christians from all social strata in life before Christ are all one. Paul says uh, something similar to this effect In Colossians chapter 3, he talks about uh, that we are justified by faith. We were under the law. The law was like a guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under that as a guardian. And then he says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. All of you, he says to the church, you all. And in the situation in Galatians, we probably had uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And there, if you read Galatians, you understand there was a little bit of an issue with the Judaizers coming from outside saying you have to actually obey the law uh, of Moses in order to become a Christian. Maybe Jesus is the beginning, but then you go on further and get circumcised. Paul is rejecting all this, but here's the theological reason why. For in Christ Jesus, through faith in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then this often abused verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave, same Greek word, doulos, nor free, There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, this verse often gets manipulated and twisted around to bad ends to say, ah, see, there's no Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. And then it's opening that up to allowing all sorts of um, erasing of distinctions uh, of gender. But that's not what Paul is talking about. He, Christians from all social status in Christ are one in Christ. In the church, both Christian masters and Christian slaves um, share the same status before God through faith in Christ. There is no difference. Uh, and I've often heard this. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everybody's the same. We are all children of God. There's no grandchildren of God. We're all children of God. So there are no master Christians, and there's no regular Christians, and there's no bondservant Christians. They're all Christians. However, that fact does not override the levels of authority that God has established in the world. The gospel does not dismantle social institutions. It may forbid immoral or unethical behavior and practices within those institutions, but it doesn't abolish those institutions. It does not dismantle them. The gospel is not about leveling all in society. All are one before Christ, but that doesn't mean there are no... uh, That there's no difference between husband and wife in the family relationship. Or that there's no difference between parent and child in a household relationship. Or that there's no difference between slaves and masters, the slave and master relationship. Or for us, we would say there's no difference between employer or employee relationship. Right? That's his point here in verse 2 do not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So the the idea is that, well, he's a member of the church, and he's the same as me, and we're both one in Christ, and therefore they took that as license to be disobedient to their earthly masters. And Paul's saying, no, you've, you've got that wrong. He says, on the contrary, you should actually serve them all the better. Because They benefit from your good service, and so do you. And those who benefit are believers, he says. So those are the instructions, the the conduct that's required for Christian slaves in verses 1 and 2. And then he gets into this transition here in verses uh, 3 through 5 about false teachers. We had looked at this before. um, And because he says, Paul says to Timothy, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of the Lord, in accord, that accords with godliness, puffed up, he's puffed up with conceit, understands nothing, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind, deprived in the truth. Okay, We've looked at all of these before. We've seen on a couple of occasions throughout this series, we've seen the the type of character and conduct of the false teachers, and we've looked at all of these before. But uh, Paul's revisiting it again because that's one of the main topics that he needs Timothy to address. But then it's the last line here that's unique to this context. Of the false teachers, he says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This is what they do. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. They're going to, to take Christianity and use it as a skin suit for to build their own empire, their own financial empire. That was what was happening in the churches in those days. They would sneak into homes to you know, taking advantage of weak-willed women as we'd seen before. Peter had the same thing in the churches that he had to, to oversee. This is what false teachers were going and doing. They're saying, hey we have this is an opportunity to Make some coin. And so Paul uses that as kind of now the launching pin to go into the launching point to go to the issue of contentment. Verses 6 through 10. Because verse 5, as they were talking about the, the false teachers, they thought godliness, you know, godliness, you can put that kind of in scare quotes, you know, because their godliness was a false godliness. Their Godliness was a means of gain. He now says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. So here's contentment with godliness. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these... We will be content. What's the secret of contentment? Well, in these verses, the secret of contentment is godliness. I think there's many in the world who would like, who who, who feel the, the heaviness and the stress and the weight of what life is like in the modern age and how difficult it probably is. And there's lots of people, unbelievers, who want contentment. And Paul is saying, actually, contentment, Contentment comes with godliness. True contentment comes with godliness. So he says we must keep in mind before our eyes is a a godliness-based contentment. A godliness-based contentment. Well, what is that? Well, a godliness-based contentment has a couple of features. Notice it, it remembers the transitory nature of this life in this present world. Okay, that's That you see in verse 7. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Why? For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. How do you come into the world? Naked. Literally with nothing. How do you go out of this world when you die? You go back into the ground. You cannot take anything with it. You've probably seen those memes before. There's a hearse with a casket in it and hits to the back is a a U-Haul with all of their, you know, have you ever seen that picture? And it's like, it doesn't work that way. You can't take it with you when you go. The objects that undermine our contentment and that create greed within us um, are the things that are in this world that, that, that they're all things that are part of this world that we are passing through. We're just passing through. That's the first one. Remember the transitory nature of this life, he says. He says, be grateful for the basics. Be content with the necessities. In verse 8, if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Jesus says something very similar in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. And then the third thing to notice underneath this, this godliness-based contentment, is know the risks of rejecting a godliness-based contentment. There's a danger in not pursuing a godliness-based contentment. Verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Quite, uh, do you kind of catch like the driving emotions behind this and the intensity of some of the words that the apostle Paul is using here? Notice the driving of remote the emotions here: the desire to be rich, the love of money, this craving. He says. And then notice the description of the outcomes. Temptation, a snare, senseless and harmful desires, plunging people to ruin and destruction. That money is a root of all kinds of evils. Now, he's not saying that money is the singular source of all evil. He's saying that money is a root of all sorts of evil. That The fruit on the tree that comes... From the one root of money, the fruit of evil is is expansive. And then look at this wandered away from the faith. They've wandered away from the faith. This goes with what Jesus said about the parable of the soils the one who, the the soil who received the word, but then the the deceitfulness and the, the, the desire for riches choke that out and make it unfruitful. Paul says the same thing here. Is that craving, if you don't quench that craving and know the risks of rejecting a godliness-based contentment, then Paul is saying the, the end root, the, the, uh, the end of that journey is a dead end, and it leads to wandering away from the faith. And then notice it's self-inflicted. Pierced themselves with many pangs. Friends, godliness-based contentment, and this is uh, again, this is complementary to the slave passage about serving your, your your masters. Don't be disrespectful to your masters, but serve them, and then to be content with this the status that you that the Lord has put you in. From there, the Apostle Paul goes into some instructions to Timothy. Verses 11 through 16. And perhaps, Lord willing, we'll come back to these on another occasion. But he, he goes to these instructions to Timothy. And he ends with this kind of doxological thing in verses 15 and 16. And then he returns back to the theme of contentment with a charge to wealthy Christians in verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Kind of catch here in these verses. Verses 17 through 19 are complementary to verses 6 through 10. Both are dealing with worldly wealth and money. In verses 6 through 10, the the kind of the sub-message there is that it's dealing with those Christians who are wanting to become rich, perhaps. And in verses 17 through 19 are instructions to those Christians who have already become rich. So char- Paul gives this charge then to the rich, rich Christians who are in the church. And then note... He says, as for the rich in this present age, right? He's talking to, he's not saying, you know, Timothy, go on and talk to a bunch of the rich people who are not part of the church. He's saying, no, talk to the rich Christians in the church in Ephesus. As for the rich, I have some instructions for them, okay? Notice it's not wrong for a a Christian to have wealth. The proof is that Paul is giving instructions to them. Paul does not direct that the the rich now divest themselves of their riches, right? That's not what Paul is saying here. But he does give some instructions on warning them of the dangers of it and then some of their obligations for it. So here's five kind of a combination of warnings of the dangers and then two uh, suggestions for obligations for those who have this wealth. Paul's warning to the rich Christians, the first three are warnings. It's this, be humble. Be humble. If the Lord has seen fit in his providence for you to to have wealth, then be humble about it. Charge them, he says, not to be haughty. Second, he says, take care in what it is you trust. Notice the rest of verse 17. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. To set your hope on, to trust in, to lean on riches. When riches, Paul says, that's an uncertainty. You you can have, there's all sorts of uh, things that can happen in the world that could cause a, a, a major shift in your financial status. Think back to the, the Great Depression, for instance. There were people who had a tremendous amount of wealth and lost it in, in a very short matter of time. And don't think it couldn't happen today. So the uncertainty of riches. So he says, hey, if you have the riches, then just have them. Don't don't lean on them. Don't trust on them. Don't, Don't place your hope in it. Instead, rather, here's the third thing. Place your hope in God. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but he's saying here, set your hopes on God. The God who what? The God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And then he gives some positive things that they could do. Look at the fourth one. To be rich in good works and generosity. Here, I think Paul's doing play on words to rich Christians. He says, hey, you know what you should be rich in? You know what you should have a pretty good sizable savings of and a portfolio of is good works. How about that? How about good works? being a part of your portfolio and being generous. And then verse and then the fifth one, in verse 19, how about this? How about leveraging your wealth wealth for the world to come? Notice verse 19 again. Thus storing up treasure, let me back up to verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It would be a misreading here to think of their future as their worldly future, or their their aged years, or their retirement. The future here that Paul has in mind in verse 19 is the eternal future. Storing up, so through your good works and your generosity, having a a very humble perspective on the wealth. You're not trusting in the uncertainty of them. But you're you're leveraging your wealth for the world to come. Paul says, why don't you do that? So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And this is why I I read, I wanted us to read. Luke chapter 16. Go back to that parable in Luke chapter 16. It's a fascinating parable because you're sitting here going, wait, this guy doesn't seem like a hero of the story. <laughs> he's, he's kind of like swindling his, uh, he's kind of swindling and stealing from his, his master. Is Jesus kind of commending that? I don't, I don't think Jesus is commending that, but because Jesus actually calls him the dishonest one, verse 8, right? The, the, ma- the master commended the dishonest managers. Notice that Jesus is not commending the dishonest manager for his deception and stealing from his employer. That would be missing the point of this passage. Remember, the, the master, so this this uh, a rich man had a manager and charges were brought against that manager for wasting his possessions. <clears throat> Remind us of this. So the master calls, The the rich man calls the manager in and says, "You're you're out. You you lost your job." Now it's probably one of those situations where this manager had his own his own margins off of what the uh, you know so he had his margins perhaps Um, and so he goes to them and he's like saying, "Okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut all of my margins and I'm going to do this and I'm doing this. I'm giving them steep discount to these to these guys and they will be grateful." They will be grateful that I kind of did this for them and that I'm saving up, you know, I'm, I'm kind of buying favors, right? This is a very shrewd tactic. I'm, gonna, I'm going to, ch- to change their price on things, which they'll be grateful for, for the major discount. And he goes, and then when I lose my job, then maybe I can have, uh, you know, thinking of a future arrangement with them on the side, right? That, that's kind of the basic idea because he says so, right? He says, I know what I'm going to do. I've decided what to do, verse 4, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Like I'm going to cut you guys some favors, and I want some favors back. So it's the shrewdness of it. Even the even the master even the master goes hey that was a pretty cool move <laughs> like you, uh, I see what you did there with my with my funds like Jesus says the master commended him for that. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And then notice the key point here. Jesus says in verse nine, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Now here, if you could see in the the footnote in the ESV, it says mammon, a Semitic word for money or possessions. It it just kind of means like worldly possessions, not necessarily like like it was ill-gotten gain, like all of the money you have is ill-gotten gain. It's more just thinking of like worldly money. Make friends for yourself by means of this worldly money so that when it fails, they may receive you into the, etor- the eternal dwellings. I think that that's a very fascinating, very fascinating thing. Here's the main point. The dishonest manager strategically used... Uh, this is a quote from somewhere. I don't remember where. but um, And I may have butchered the quote, but uh, th- here it is. The dishonest manager strategically used his master's money to buy earthly friends. That's the point. Christians are to strategically use our master's money in a way that will accrue friends for eternity. I'll say that again. The dishonest manager strategically used his master's money to buy earthly friends. And it's the shrewdness of that that is being commended here. And then in verse 9, Jesus is suggesting that Christians are to strategically use our master's money, because he owns it all here anyway, in a way that will accrue friends for eternity. Or in other words, wise, wisely investing worldly wealth to bring sinners to Christ so that they, when they arrive to heaven, those sinners will be there to welcome them. I think that's the point of this very interesting parable, and I think it dovetails nicely with what Paul is saying here in verse 19. Hey, to the, to the rich in this present age, here's, here's what you should do. A couple of warnings, a couple of warnings to you about having it. It's, it's not wrong to have it. You don't have to divise, divest yourself of it, but just don't trust in it. Don't be boastful about it. Be Be generous and ready to share. Do good works. And then you will be storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. That's the future he's talking about. The eternal dwellings that Jesus spoke of in Luke 16. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. How about that? What if we were to strategically use our master's money in a way that will accrue friends for eternity? That's Paul's suggestion for Christian, for the rich Christians. And now is a summary of the whole passage. In particular, these passages that, that kind of are, are complementary and go well together. The charge to the conduct for Christian slaves... Uh, uh, contentment with godliness and a charge to wealthy Christians. I love how John Stott put it in his commentary. and It uh, reads as like this, and I believe it's in the um, it's on the slide. John Stott says, looking up over both of the paragraphs about money, the Apostles balanced wisdom becomes apparent. Against materialism, an obsession with material possessions, he sets Simplicity of lifestyle. Against asceticism, the repudiation of the material order, he sets gratitude for God's creation. Against covetousness, the lust for more possessions, he sets contentment with what we have. Against selfishness, the accumulation of goods for ourselves, he sets Generosity in imitation of God. Simplicity, gratitude, contentment and generosity constitute a healthy quadrilateral of Christian living. And here I've kind of put it into a chart, from materialism to simplicity. And then the opposite is stream from, from asceticism to, to gratitude, for the good gifts that God gives. In the world. From covetousness to contentment. Contentment with godliness, a godliness based contentment. And from selfishness to generosity. Amen? Oh, that the Lord would help us to take to heart the words that the Apostle Paul gives to those in Ephesus, to Timothy. And to those in Ephesus, those, whether we be more at the closer end to slaves and how we need to behave with our masters, or maybe we're more toward the end of the rich Christians and we need to heed his warnings and encouragements there. But that what links them all together is this teaching on contentment and what a convicting teaching that is, isn't it? And what the contentment is grounded on. Contentment is grounded on a generous God. Contentment is grounded on a God who graciously saves us in Christ Jesus. Contentment that is based on a God who delivers us out from this present evil age of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of his son through faith in the work that Christ has done. So that we can now change the way we look at all the things that we see in this world. And what a convicting passage this is. Oh, that we would lift up our eyes to the hills and see from where does our help come. Our help comes from the Lord. And when we think of the big picture of what God has done throughout the entire gospel, we think that Christ has gone ahead of us into the heavenly places that we brought nothing into this world and we can't take anything out. May that gospel, that gospel, that picture of the work of Christ, the God in Christ, fuel at a very practical level for us today the contentment that we need in this world. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Indeed, our Heavenly Father, your word is wonderful we thank you for what it teaches us, and that your concern for a godliness based contentment, a contentment grounded in the gospel, the work that you have done, and we eagerly await the return of our Savior, and that your new heavens and the new earth, the new creation that you have prepared for us. Remind us that we are sojourners in this world and help us to view the the material things in this world that are a snare and a temptation and a hindrance to us. Help us to view them rightly as we are passing through. Help us to think of using this unrighteous wealth or mammon or material possessions that we have for your kingdom for the eternal dwellings of our future that others may join us there so help us to apply this passage into our lives in this we pray in christ's mighty name and all god's people said amen and amen now i may have as we get ready to share the lord's supper together and uh, Kind of think of this, the the supper, as we close here, Uh, we're remembering here the gospel. It's the gospel is pictured for us. And that as we take this together, we just move from here and transition to our fellowship meal uh, afterward. But to do so, let me uh, preface our Lord's Supper this way by reading a quote from John Calvin's Institutes regarding it. And it should be on the slides as well. And so you could follow along. John Calvin says uh, this about the Lord's Supper. God has received us once for all into his family to hold us not only as servants, but as sons. Thereafter, to fulfill the duties of a most excellent father concerned for his offspring, he undertakes also